0: Hello and welcome to another edition of the UK Law Weekly podcast with me, your host, Marcus Cleaver. This week we're going to be looking at the case of MS and Secretary of State for the Home Department, the citation for this case, 2020 UKSC 9. And this particular case that we're going to be looking at this week demonstrates how harshly the immigration system can operate, even in relation to those who are perhaps the most vulnerable and in need of protection. MS is the appellant at the heart of this case. He is from Pakistan, and from the age of 12, he had been subject to physical abuse and forced labour. In 2011, at the age of 16, he came to the UK on a visitor's visa, but stayed as his step-grandmother promised that MS would be able to improve his education. Unfortunately, that was not the case and the abuse that he suffered in Pakistan continued in the UK as he was forced to work first for his step-grandmother and then for other members of the family for no pay at all. This continued until MS's plight came to the attention of the police in September 2012 and his case was referred to something called the National Referral Mechanism because he was in such a vulnerable position and there were concerns that he had been trafficked. The National Referral Mechanism is a scheme run by the Respondent Home Office to ostensibly protect and support the victims of modern slavery, but in February 2013 the mechanism concluded that there was no reason to believe that MS had been the victim of trafficking, even though the decision makers had made no effort to even meet or interview MS about his circumstances. Not being very satisfied with this, and now having his immigration status threatened as well, MS launched a judicial review claim in respect of the decision made by the National Referral Mechanism. However, that judicial review is not the subject of this present case. Instead, MS had claimed asylum in the UK, and when that application was rejected in August of 2013, the Secretary of State made the decision to deport. It is against that decision that the current appeal was launched on asylum and human rights grounds. The first tier tribunal did come to the conclusion that MS was under the control and compulsion of his relatives, but decided to dismiss his appeal. The upper tribunal decided to allow MS's appeal and spent some time looking closely at the decision made by the national referral mechanism. While it was noted that that decision could itself only be challenged by judicial review, if the decision was either perverse or contrary to some public law ground, then the upper tribunal is allowed to come to its own conclusion as to whether a person was the victim of trafficking and modern slavery. Their reasoning behind this was that if they did not come to their own conclusion, then the subsequent deportation decision would be contrary to both the Council of Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking in Human Beings, or ECAT for short, and the European Convention on Human Rights. When the case next went to the Court of Appeal, the justices there found in favour of the Home Office, basing their judgment on the decision in AS Afghanistan and Secretary of State for the Home Department from 2013. In that case, it was held that the Upper Tribunal would only be able to override the mechanism's trafficking decision if it was perverse, irrational or a decision that is not open for the National Referral Mechanism to make. According to the Court of Appeal, the upper tribunal was wrong to essentially treat the mechanism decision as an immigration decision. Furthermore, their interpretation of ECAT was also mistaken because it suggested that the obligations under that convention translated into positive obligations under Article 4 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which prohibits slavery, servitude and forced labour. As the case moved to the Supreme Court, another issue came up. MS's own immigration issue became resolved, and so he wished to withdraw from the proceedings. However, by this point, the Equality and Human Rights Commission had applied to intervene in the case, and so a preliminary question for the justices of the Supreme Court was whether the Commission could take over the appeal in MS's stead. To answer that question, we can start out by noting that in October 2019, the Equality and Human Rights Commission was granted permission to intervene in the case. According to the rules of the Supreme Court, an intervener is considered a party to an appeal, and, furthermore, an appeal can only be officially withdrawn with the consent of all parties, or with the consent of the court. When thinking about that consent of the court, it is important to bear in mind the overriding objective, which is to ensure that the court is fair, accessible and efficient. Furthermore, where there is an important question of law that is outstanding and may have been decided incorrectly by a lower court, the Supreme Court may allow for an intervention and then allow that intervener to take over the appeal. With that in mind, the appeal proceeds with the Equality and Human Rights Commission at the helm. In terms of the main judgment, the focus is on the decision made by the upper tribunal and to what extent they have to take into account decisions reached by the National Referral Mechanism. It was agreed between the parties that an immigration tribunal does have to ensure that any decision to remove someone from the UK does not breach the European Convention on Human Rights. That necessitates determining the facts of any given case for itself, although due weight and consideration should be given to any previous determinations made by a relevant authority, like the National Referral Mechanism. Importantly then, it became common ground that not only is a tribunal not bound by a decision made by the mechanism, but it does not have to find some public law ground in order to override it. If you think about it, that makes a lot of sense. After all, the immigration tribunals were set up to hear appeals against immigration decisions, and according to the Immigration, Nationality and Asylum Act 2002, as well as the immigration rules, there is a clear intention that this involves a judgement of the facts of each individual case based on the evidence that is presented. Such an understanding was confirmed in the 2007 case of Huang and Secretary of State for the Home Department. Even beyond this, the tribunals here were actually better placed to make a determination as to whether MS had been the victim of trafficking, given that the decision makers from the National Referral Mechanism didn't even bother to interview MS before arriving at a determination. Of course, while this deals with the factual question of what happened to the appellant, and the procedural questions about the powers of the immigration tribunals, the justices of the Supreme Court did still need to resolve the legal issue around ECAT and Article 4 of the ECHR. The Council of Europe Convention on Action Against Trafficking in Human Beings sets out a number of obligations for the UK, including the protection of victims. There was some argument during these proceedings about whether this encompassed a negative duty, i.e. for the government to simply not engage in certain activities, or a positive duty, requiring some proactive action on the part of the UK to protect victims. In order to answer this, the justices turned to the case law, first of all the 2006 decision in Ciliadon and France, which dealt with Article 4 of the ECHR, but held that this did involve positive obligations. The legal authorities then led them to Rantsev and Russia from 2010, where the European Court of Human Rights held that the definition of human trafficking in ECAT also falls within the definition of slavery, servitude, and forced labor under Article 4 of the ECHR. That is important because it essentially equates both of the international treaties in that respect. Putting all of this together, we can see that the positive duty under ECAT also translates to a positive duty under the ECHR as well, a duty to actively investigate complaints of trafficking and to protect victims. When the justices applied this legal reasoning to the case at hand, they held that the upper tribunal had the right to conclude that MS was a victim of trafficking. While they went on to say that there was no risk of MS being re-trafficked were he to be deported back to Pakistan, There hadn't been a thorough and effective investigation into the breach of Article 4 because the police had failed to take any further action once MS's case had been referred to social services. An investigation that would satisfy the relevant criteria would be impossible if MS was back in Pakistan and so the Supreme Court unanimously decided to restore the judgment of the upper tribunal. As we move on to the analysis of this case, I think we can conclude that the legal reasoning was pretty solid. It is true that there will be many instances where the conclusions of a designated body ought to rightly take precedence over the findings of a court or tribunal. Simply put, those organisations have more resources and expertise compared to a judge who hears a multitude of cases on a range of immigration topics. However that isn't always the case and we can see in these proceedings that the national referral mechanism failed MS and demonstrated gross incompetence in its entire approach. In those circumstances it just doesn't make sense for a judge to be beholden to a bad decision when the reality is that the tribunal has more information and is able to come to a better and fairer assessment. To make a broader point, I also think that this question raises a lot of issues around the effectiveness of the national referral mechanism. After all, this case demonstrates that their actions are central to upholding the UK's international obligations, but this appears to conflict with the political drive by the Home Office to reduce immigration numbers. Even outside of the politicisation of the mechanism, studies have found that the mechanism also suffers from a number of other failings such as poor decision making, a lack of knowledge about children and child welfare, and a lack of training. If the UK is going to be signed up to international conventions, then the positive obligations that derive from that require proper institutions and infrastructure to meet that challenge. At the moment, this politically motivated body is not able to fulfill those duties, and its failures negatively impact the most vulnerable in our society. While this case made its way to the Supreme Court, the worrying prospect is that this is only the tip of the iceberg. Well, thank you very much for tuning in to this podcast episode, and thanks as ever to blendsoundcom who provide the theme music. Do hope that you're all doing well at home and continue to sort of wash your hands and engage in social distancing and isolation and all that. Um, do have my sympathy and uh, we're all in the same position, so hopefully we'll get through this together. In the meantime, do remember you can check out old episodes of the podcast if you're subscribed on say Spotify or iTunes or wherever. And you can also find my videos on the YouTube channel that's youtube.com forward slash my name which is Marcus Cleaver. I'll be back with another episode next week for now.